Hello everyone and welcome to Kids Under Construction. I'm Donna Tatro. Today we're focusing on COVID-19 and the headlines. We're going to talk about the big announcement regarding remdesivir. This drug, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, is showing significant positive effects as a treatment to COVID-19. We are also going to be talking about states reopening. The division over this is palpable. And a plan for schools to open in California late in the summer, potentially. So let's just get right to it. I'm so happy to welcome my two guests. Dr. Sean Nossery is a Harvard-educated Mayo Clinic-trained ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Practicing since 2000, he is recognized as one of the most highly sought-after doctors of our time and a sinus surgery voice and allergy expert. Dr. Sean is frequently consulted by the biggest names in vocal performance, music management, television, feature production, and media. Dr. Bita Nasseri is an anesthesiologist with over 22 years of medical experience. Her training spans across the Mayo Clinic, USC and UCLA, with cardiac, transplant, airway, and outpatient anesthesia expertise. In addition to consulting for numerous programs, Dr. Bita has overseen her own successful surgical centers throughout her career. As a proud parent to three children, she has a passion for preventative and holistic care. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Let's talk about remdesivir. Talk about it and the FDA moving forward with this emergency use authorization. Can you talk about this drug, doctors? Absolutely. So remdesivir is a drug that's been around since the days of SARS in 2003 and MERS in 2012. And it's a drug that's actually been tested out. It's not a drug without side effects. But what's very, very promising this week, and Dr. Anthony Fauci announced that this week, that the initial study coming out showed significant improvement in terms of outcome for patients in the hospital who are very sick, who are basically in hospitalized or ICU settings and getting remdesivir in combinations with other medications and, and supportive care. And this was actually a controlled trial for respectively, we're going forward. And they were able to balance out, again, patients who have obesity, hypertension, age, uh, all their other comorbidity, comorbidity factors were balanced out. So that makes a really big difference compared to the earlier studies on hydroxychloroquine that were coming out that were just, again, prospective. And then we're comparing two arms and seeing, does the drug actually work? It was a, a group of patients who did well for not really clear reasons. So one was a blind study, one was a controlled study. With a controlled study, all the factors are under control and changing factually the medication patients receive. One receives placebo, one receives the drug treatment with all the other factors pretty consistent in two crowds versus the blind study where you could have different comorbidities that could interact or worsen the severity of the symptoms of each patient. Now, this was a huge breakthrough, according to Fauci. What do you both feel? And obviously, it's only going to be used at this point for very, very sick people um, in the hospital, IV. Do you see this drug being used potentially for people who just have the virus later on? Can they change the enzymes? Can they do anything for other patients? Well, I think the hope right now is actually to care for the critically ill. And once that's under control, um, it's a balance, balance of the two worlds. Do no harm to your patient, get the benefit of the medication without harm. That's a balancing act. And I uh, applaud anyone who's doing 
the work that they're doing because what ends up happening, if you are not critically ill and if you are going to recover from the disease, maybe that outweighs the cost of you having to take such a strong drug. This drug may be safe for critically ill for a very long time to come. Talk a little bit about what we're hearing and break down these vaccines for us. So the fast track for any vaccine, again, the reason we say fast track, and again, in the realm of the length of the world or in the next year. So it's going to be a minimum of eight to 12 months because when you have a vaccine and you have it to, let's say, one of the common ones that's already in study, they're testing out, number one, does it work in terms of initiating enough antibody response or robust antibody response to those specific proteins of the virus so we can fight off either getting the virus or how the virus multiplies. That's one. Antibody response in lame terms is immune response. Right. Strengthen your immunities to fight the infection. Step two is making sure it's safe for people. So they initially injected a young gentleman, I believe in his 20s, who's robust and healthy and has no real comorbidity. Because you'll see most vaccines, like every year, we tell people from six months up, you can get the flu vaccine. But people over 65 should definitely have the flu vaccine. And the pneumonia vaccine should definitely be in people over 50 because they're the most susceptible populations. So the third step is not just seeing is it safe, looking at it in thousands or thousands of patients to see unusual responses or unusual side effects. Because you're not just getting the vaccine, you're getting your body's reaction to whatever some of that disease would be. So a lot of people complain, we send them for the flu vaccine, we get the flu vaccine every year. They feel flu symptoms for several days and they say, wait, I got the flu from the vaccine. And you're like, no, no, no. You had your immune system response to the flu proteins and that's why you're simulating it to get a more robust reaction. Well, in those reactions, you get what are called vaccine complications or vaccine side effects, which happen in all the vaccines that we have in a one in a million, one in five million risk. You want to see that the vaccine they're developing doesn't have cross-reactivity with normal proteins in the body, especially in the spinal cord or neurologically to have bad reactions. So you want to make sure that it's safe and then you have to scale it and produce it. And most of them are produced either completely in the laboratory or mostly in different types of media. And the most common one are usually chicken or duck egg. So people who are allergic to albumin, like the chicken egg protein, can't get many of the vaccines. It's not safe for them. So again, it's a multi-step process that will literally take a year at light speed. Because usually it takes three to five years. And look, we've had, we worked on HIV and AIDS starting in the 90s, there's still no effective vaccine. That's why we're shortening this so much and so many resources have been transferred to it, but it's still going to take time. It's not just the side effects you need to watch out for. You also have to balance out the, the live attenuated vaccine and its concentration. How much of a concentration, what is the minimum concentration you can give to a, to an individual for them to develop their immunity without actually them presenting with the illness itself. So it's a, it's a big balancing act. So it's going to take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. So at least for like the next 8 to 12 months is hopeful. 
So doctors, the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota says that this will likely last for two years until two thirds of the world's population is immune. So talk about that in relation to the vaccine and you believing that this is in fact our situation. Honestly, I feel it's really hard to tell because as, as everyone knows, viruses mutate every, every 10 days and there's small changes made in the genomic technology and, and profile of each virus. So it's hard to tell if it takes us two years to develop immunity and which immunity. Are we developing immunity against the first strain of COVID-19 or many more that has come after it? And so it's kind of hard, hard to tell. I think it's basically an analysis that's like not really supported by scientific background at this point. We know that in the fall, we will have another strain of the coronavirus as we have the four common strains of coronaviruses that are about one in every 10 colds. And that's why, God bless us, like children have been so safe. Fortunate. So fortunate in this circumstance, in this pandemic, that because they constantly share other coronaviruses with each other, they're getting some collateral immunity and not getting it nearly as badly as adults are. Because right now, the mutations we're seeing make some significant differences in terms of the genomic sequence, but not truly in terms of how the virulence is, where one strain is putting a lot more people in the hospital versus another one where it just gets young people sick for a few days. But by the fall, we'll see a fresh strain the same way that we get the flu vaccine every year, and it works only... On certain number it, of viruses. Right. And it works about 50 to 60% at best. We're going to see that if we're able to get the vaccine if it goes at super light speed and it gets here by November, December, then we'll see that a lot of people will get some significant immunity within a few weeks of getting that vaccine. But the expectation is by the following spring, we'll see another set of viral mutations that will make it slightly different. So it's going to be a vaccine we do every fall. And we're going to have the, the complications of the coronavirus around for the next year, year and a half but it's not clear how severely it will be because as we're seeing in the last two weeks and the Stanford study and the USC study that came out over the weekend, that probably three or 4% of the population have already had it without even realizing it. Because at this point, California has tested one and a quarter percent, one out of every hundred people on average have been tested. Which, the, which makes that a little more promising, meaning that the disease is not as severe and as bad as we all feel it is. It, it's a hopeful study where you realize if a larger population has been infected, majority asymptomatic, that means the number of deaths to the ratio of people who are positive coronavirus is much smaller than what we see. And we and that's very hopeful. That's very hopeful, positive. I have a question about potential hope, and it's been going back and forth. You just don't know. Different sources are saying this or that. What does heat and the summer temperatures play into this, if anything? So it's basically a respiratory droplets and aerosols. So all viruses, all bacteria, all fungi respond differently to sunlight and UV rays. And temperature. So, and temperature. So the warmer it is and outside with UV rays, if you have a piece of plastic indoors for three days, the virus can survive in a respiratory droplet on that surface if it's cool, and if it's indoors without significant heat or light, you put it outside. And that's why everyone's being advised, you get a box or a delivery, 
set it outside for even a few hours in the sun, and you do get significant burn off or evaporation of the respiratory droplets, and you get the natural UV right that tends to sterilize a lot of things, not just the coronavirus. But it's truly in terms of respiratory droplets, why do people get sick twice as much in the winter, in the winter than in the spring and summer? We're inside, we're in closed spaces, schools in session, and when you sneeze at a colder temperature, those respiratory droplets are more dense and heavier, so they'll tend to float around for Leave three to longer. six feet. And then the tiny aerosols, when we laugh, cough, or breathe deeply, the tiny little particles that will be around for two or three hours, the warmer it is, the more they're going to open up and dissipate and then basically not be a risk to people. And so when it's warmer, you're outside, you're breathing outside air, you're going to see a lot lower infection rates. So warmer air and sunlight, natural heat, denatures the protein within the virus. So the whole risk the virus dies or there is less concentration of that virus. So there's little bits of hope as we move and as the days unfold. What I want to talk to you now is about schools. I mean, we are now in a situation where it's not like a summer slide of three months. We are in a six-month slide. This is the learning decline that happens every year during the summer, but this is a prolonged six-month period. Talk a little bit about what Governor Newsom is saying. He's saying he wants to get kids back into school late July, early August to start the school year again, six feet apart or the desks. I, as a former teacher, don't see how that's manageable where you're in a classroom and all the desks are so close to each other. How would you see this working? Can this work? What would the phases be? I, I, I believe probably the, the best that can be done is make into a two-session program. So there's a morning session and an afternoon session. So the classes are divided into two groups. So the volume is much smaller, but obviously you have to see uh, the classroom. There goes a hygienic change. What, are, what modification needs to be made? Air filters place, UV light place, changing the seats that are co-ed and shared tables to individual seats that are separated by six feet. But it's really hard to educate a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, even a 12, 14-year-old. Stay away from your friends. Do social distancing. You can't come close. Don't share a pen. Don't share a pencil. Don't sharpen your uh, pencil. So it, it is really hard. I think it, it takes a lot of uh, re-educating our children and ourselves because by nature, we're social. We love to hug and touch. And how are we going to manage that? Who knows? And I guess uh, hats off to the governor for trying to figure that out. Because as a parent to three children of varying ages, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning what can be done to make their life as normalized as possible and what that normal will be to re-educate them about what their norm will be in the future. And it also brings out a lot of anxiety for the children, especially the younger children. And we have a seven-year-old. Every time we step outside the house and he doesn't have a mask, he says, am I going to get the corona? And we're like, there's no one within 100 feet. So we're trying to, again, reinforce the positive education. And again, at the school level, you're a teacher. We have three kids. Both my parents are teachers. When you have people in an enclosed environment for hours at a time, is that 
that singing, laughing, talking loudly, you know, all those are going to be forbidden. How do you forbid an eight-year-old? Well, and and to your point, uh, how do you put a mask on an eight-year-old, let alone a 12 or 13-year-old, all day long? I mean, I, I don't see how that happens. Even taking snacks. I mean, younger kids have to take snacks every two hours in school. How are they going to eat? Uh, how are they going to divide up? Many schools provide meals. And how are we going to do that? You can't send a child to school for five hours and say, you can't drink or you can't take snack breaks. So you, we have to figure out the opportunities of giving them as much of a normal at, at atmosphere as you can, but also protect them physically and emotionally in this process. Now, from your perspective as doctors, though, if, if schools were open in September and say the protocol was every other day you're in to allow for other kids to come in, the desks are separated um, during the time that the teacher is teaching, children do not have to wear masks because they can just sit there and listen. If there were like this, this guidelines, would you as doctors feel comfortable sending your children into the classroom? As a parent, I always feel, and a physician, I always feel, feel much more comfortable if there are standards and guidelines. If we follow the guidelines and not lenient from it, mistakes happen a lot, a lot less frequently, especially for someone like me training anesthesia. Guidelines are key for preventative care and uh, protection from any potential disaster surgically in the operating room. So guidelines are great. First thing, don't send your child to school who is sick. Every child's temperature should be taken at the time of entry to the school. Siblings should not be allowed to come for drop-off. Um, children who have sniffles or a cough should not be allowed to come to school. Parents and teachers who have fevers, coughs should not come to school. This parameter should be inclusive to everyone, including all janitorial services, house staff, cafeteria workers in the schools. And if we follow those guidelines, I believe we're going to do a lot better. We'll still see a spike in the fall. But again, that's hard to tell if it's related to weather, temperature, school starting, major holidays, the autumn weather, and everyone being in more indoors. But we can mitigate that as much as possible if we use good, safe, intelligent protocols that children can follow. I think for Sean and I, we've been in practice over 20 years, and we use universal precaution every day of our practice for the last 20 years. We haven't, we've been blessed. We haven't gotten the, the basic pandemic endemics that comes and goes. We haven't gotten the flus. We haven't gotten the bronchitis, the pneumonias. And patients often ask us, are you guys bulletproof? Are you taking certain vitamins or minerals? And the reality of it is we actually do exactly what we've been taught in med school, universal precaution, wash your hand frequently. Don't touch surfaces touched by others. I never touch another person's cell phone. I wipe my hand with hand sanitizer in between each patient, in between each room, before I put on my gloves. When I take off my gloves off, never touch my face. So if everybody else, the general population is slowly taught in the certain universal precautions that we need to take without make, making everyone obsessive and compulsive about it, because then that's not good. It makes our lives completely miserable. Then I think we'll do a lot better. 
So some some balance there. That's I really, really love that. I want to talk to you now about how it's been for you as parents with your three <laughs> kids. Talk a little bit about your three kids. Why I say Vietnam War has been in our living room. Right. That's just like, you know, putting it lightly. <laughs> right. So we have we have a 21-year-old who's graduating from university. She's a triple major. She her thesis defense on Zoom. It froze twice, but it's fine. You know, she's been taking her online classes. She's been writing her thesis. She's been taking exams. We have a junior in high school who's in like student council and very involved and has been taking her exams online. Those have been somewhat tolerable. The, the limitation there has been making them not feel so separate or as diaspora because they feel so disconnected from their friends. Socially isolated. And at that age for both of them, they feel very social isolated from their friends and they keep asking, well, can I do, you know, can I have four friends come over? No. no. Can I go, can I go where four friends are meeting in the park? And we're like one or two friends, 10 feet apart. You're great. But it's really, really difficult to, for two teenage girls to really go through that. And then we have a first grader who's seven. And for him, we've had two or three hours of screen time a day. And I know you have a child around the same age, a little older, but that's very challenging. And you're a teacher. We always try to limit screen time in our family. And we're literally sticking him in front of the computer with one of us, three, three and a half, sometimes four hours a day to go through all these different exercises, which are very great for, in, for injecting thought, emotion, consideration, <laughs> development, but they're also on a screen. So that is very much affecting their development and it creates a lot more of that that frustration frustration. You know, there is not much of an outlet for the kids. They are stuck in the house with us 24-7. For a young adult uh, woman and a teenage adult daughter, it's not very easy to be with two parenting physicians uh, and the seven-year-old, the prince in the house, obviously gets his way with everything. <laughs> We've done a lot of backyard badminton, tennis, playing catch. We've had one broken nose and a broken finger, but you know Other what? than that, we're Other good. That, we're great. <laughs> <laughs> like, and how are you enjoying the play? Well, thank goodness that he has doctors who can take care of him when he has these accidents. <laughs> he um, said, uh, you know, as a caution, we chose not to have any kind of sedative or anesthetic given to him for any of his procedures because obviously during this time try to limit what you need to get medically if it's unnecessary don't do it um and that's the take-home message and we're hearing a lot of people in the around the city and around los angeles doing a lot of not just elective procedures but cosmetic procedures and those are things where again if it's in a safe environment where you someone who you know has a meticulously clean office they're separated they're separating patients. That's a great idea because that's also just understanding beauty health mindset for all of us, but just to do it as safely as possible. And that's the same way that we're approaching all of our surgeries because we do surgery. I'm a surgeon. She's an anesthesiologist. We do surgery. But the balance is that each of us have guidelines in our surgical center and the hospitals in terms of protecting patients as much as possible and patients and staff on both levels. Let's talk about bringing patients back to your office and what your new normal is looking like. Um, talk to us about that. The new normal is very lonely, first of all. But because we're, we, we love seeing our patients, Sean and I have great connection with our patients. They're like family, not seeing them all the time or, 
or hear about them or hear of them or their family members have been lonely. So, um, but the new norm is the fact that every patient who needs to be seen in the office has to go through many hoops as, as I'm hoping every other physician in their offices are doing the same. So for example, if Sean needs to see a patient, they have to go through the following. They have to first, we do a COVID screening call and that's the day they're going to be seen well in advance, but also the day they're going to be seen. So patients with fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, an acute change in smell or taste, lower GI symptoms like the stomach aches, definitely are not coming in during that time if possible. We're doing all their consulting virtually. Also family member with COVID. Anybody with a recent family member in the last 10 to 14 days with coronavirus, we also screen those patients to, again, do 99% of it by virtual consultation as we're doing with you right now. And then as much as possible, as LA County has really stepped up its efforts and California went from 400,000 to 600,000 tests in the last two weeks alone, we're again, we went from one-tenth of a percent of patients who were tested to now over 1%. So there are ways to screen. And now more of the commercial laboratories have that capability as the reagents are coming in. Because before, we could do tests, but they didn't have the swabs for doing the test. We had the tests and the swabs, but not the juice, the reagents to run the tests for any of the commercial labs that keep you know, every doctor's office supplied. So now we're getting closer to that in the next four to six weeks in terms of testing patients who are at higher risk and getting a negative result. And again, the tests, just to be clear, when you look at 10 people with coronavirus who have the virus in their body, the test will pick up all but two. Some test three. We're talking about the PCR test in the nose, which is everyone knows is exquisitely unpleasant. And then the mouse swab, which will pick up around seven or eight out of 10, because it's a different style of test. There are newer oral saliva testing mechanisms that are coming out and companies are coming out. But again, none of them have had full FDA validation. As you said at the beginning, we have emergency use authorization for remdesivir to be used in the hospital. That means we have not tested it at the CDC FDA level on thousands of patients and shown, number one, does it work better than something else? And number two, is it safe to use or does it, do the side effects outweigh the benefits? For these tests, they're saying basically 120 companies now have EUAs out for doing antibody testing and about 24 doing the PCR molecular testing. The antibody testing means basically with the EUA, a company has filed their petition and said internally in their laboratory, they validated their results, which is they did a hundred or thousand test kits and showed of a thousand people who had coronavirus that they show antibodies for more than 90% of them reliably. And then for patients who didn't have coronavirus, that they showed that over 95% of them did not show the test positive. So it's the false negative rate, which is if you have it, you don't know. False positive, you have something else and you come up as coronavirus. But those are all validated by the laboratories themselves and usually on several hundred or a thousand studies, not a hundred thousand studies, because that's why that process is usually a two or three year process. Dr. Bita, we now know that LA County is giving tests to anybody, free tests to anybody, even if they're asymptomatic. Talk a little bit about that. 
honestly, that's fantastic because if you're if you're asymptomatic and if you want to be tested, go back to work. And that's great. If you if you test negative, then you're entitled to, to doing your daily duties, taking care of your family member or, or going back to certain jobs that require and there's a shortage of them. However, I've noticed it's been not very easy just walking to any L.A. County facility and get tested. It's not as simple as everyone makes it sound like. For a few of our patients, when we had to make arrangements, they actually required a prescription. They had to go stand in line for three hours. And they had to go from one facility to another facility to get tested. And so it's hard to tell how accessible, even though it's free and available, but how accessible that is. And, and you know, having to stand three hours in a line, six feet separated from other people, whether they're symptomatic or not, that creates another hurdle for people to go through. Yeah, it just seems like we are in a space that is so difficult to move through and manage. And I want to talk to you now a little bit about the new normal and social distancing and what you see it looking like through the summer. At one point, Dr. Fauci said, yeah, I could see people taking summer vacations. I haven't heard that lately from him. Um, The talk about going back into schools, um, all of these states that Half of the states are reopening now. Um, talk to that. I mean, as, as 14 states in the last five days are only not flattening the curve, their curve is still going straight up in terms of either acute hospitalizations or deaths. They're at the same time, 30 some states are relaxing measures for social distancing. I think fortunately for the state of California, we haven't yet lightened up the quarantine requirements and the social distancing regulations. So it would be nice for us to have a retrospective evaluation of all of those states who have lightened up their quarantine status and see if there is a spike and what mistakes was made in which populations that created that spike so we can avoid it when the rest of the states are going to reopen up. And what does that really mean when you reopen up? Do we go back to our normal before quarantine, before COVID, or do we have to start self-educating of what our new normal will be for many more months to come before we go back to our general sort of life? At the least, that's going to be screening at every office building, every medical building. We just went to an x-ray facility to x-ray our child's hand. Everyone, as they entered that building, got a temperature check and handed a mask if for some reason they didn't have one. There were hand sanitizers everywhere. All the doors were left open so you don't touch the doorknobs. There were lines where you're actually six feet separated from the next individual in line. Uh, I have to applaud the facility we went to for having done a great job because even though we went in, we felt quite safe knowing that it was very sterile, very clean. The staff were all in appropriate gear. And the patients were greeted appropriately, not with fear, with great um, hospitality and respect, but in a warm way, they socially learned to distance us from each other. So that was great, I would say. If we can all do what the small facility does, then maybe we'll see each other out on the street soon. Yeah, that's actually a nice look into a window of what our life might look like Um, And it seems as though people are following in line to do that from what your experience was. 
They're all being great citizens, you know? We're not only protecting ourselves, we're protecting others. And I think that that's, that's this empathy build that's coming into our life as we reset on things. Is there anything that you'd like to add that maybe I haven't asked you that either patients or parents should know? I think the most important thing is, I know you're, you're uh, isolating from your family members. Call them and tell them you love them on a regular basis because they're very isolated more so than us, the, the middle-aged adults. Um, give your children a little slack. They're imprisoned in their own home all day long. And also um, applaud and appreciate your healthcare personnel. If, if, you, if you're close and connected with one, we love it when we get email back or text. Hey, I'm thinking of you. I hope you and your family are safe. It really warms our hearts. Definitely has been. That's been wonderful. And again, to give that positivity to our children that we're going to get through this. This is just another rough time. As I said, we we both, I'm 50, she's 47. We've been through AIDS, SARS, tuberculosis patients, seen MERS, anything you can imagine we've seen because we've trained on two halves of the continent. But it's one of those things where for the most part, almost everyone gets through it okay. And to be continuing that positivity for them because we're seeing a lot more patients and people who have tremendous anxiety about that uncertainty in the future. Thank you so much for your positivity, your expertise, your thoughtfulness, and just joining me together as not only doctors, but as a family and couple. I wish you so much safety and health as you move forward. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so for, having Thanks us. for having us. We'll get through this. Thank you. Lots of information there, lots to think about. Thanks for listening, everyone, and please download and subscribe to Kids Under Construction. We will get through this together. Until next time.